All I can say is you should have been here before service. Teresa, you really, that's... Charlotte and I can't wait to get to heaven so you can be there and play the piano and really play the way I know you can do that. So that's great. Thank you. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, These are difficult moments in my heart, and I can't imagine what it is for you as you think about your pastor and, and the trial of his physical body and thus also how that affects his heart, his spirit, and of course Robin and the family. So we continue to pray for them. Uh, remembering that our healing is ultimately and completely in Jesus Christ. And uh, we, don't just un- we don't understand how and where and when all of that comes, but it does come through him. I, I feel a little awkward with the text this morning. I must tell you that. I, I wasn't thinking about Chris not being here today. The, the text is written for believers, um, people who are followers of Christ, is written for some of us, like uh, that Paul describes in Colossians 3. If you are, if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, set your, or, or seek those things that are above. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For your, for you have died, and here's what it says: and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I, I hang on to that phrase all the time. For your life is hidden in Christ, with God. How do you describe your life? I am one who is with God. Not like I'm on his team. I mean, I am with God. And yet we have texts like we see as I've been working with you when we've been here through Joshua. Uh, We have texts like the one that's before us today, which is just the next in the series of of passages of Scripture that are found uh, in this book. I'd like to read part of the story. It's the story of Israel's defeat. It doesn't sound very positive, but there is a positive in the end of it. I, I hope you'll wait and hang in there with me. Um, so Joshua chapter 7 reads like this. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out this land, and the, and the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about mm, two or 3,000 men go up to attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them in the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Well, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. It's a long time. And he and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off 
our name from the earth, and what will you do for your great name? The story goes on about how Achan had sinned and how God redeemed again the people of Israel. And that's what I want us to see today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are your children. We are comforted to know that we are hidden in Christ, hidden with Christ in God, in you. And help us, Lord, though, not to take for granted this life that we have, or to somehow assume that it doesn't matter how we live it, because the story always comes out good in the end. Help us to learn even from the painful acts of the story, the people of Jerusalem, of Israel and Achan and see what we might grow from, how we might grow from this very truth, your word, that we receive into our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess I should say that I have not been yelling at Charlotte. That's not why my voice is the way it is. Um, but I stayed a week and a half ago with a lovely family in the city of uh, Gostovar, Macedonia, and uh, they have two little children that you just want to squeeze if they were here. And uh, all four of them had colds. And they told me when I went to stay there that they did. And I thought, oh, I could stay at the hotel. It cost me a whopping 30 or $40. But um, I think I'm supposed to stay here with these people. And I, I thought, I kind of know what will come out of this. Because every time I go to Albania or Macedonia or the Balkans, I usually find somebody that's got a really bad cold, and I bring it home, and it reminds me of the flesh that is mine as well. It will pass. In fact, honestly, the only thing left of it is a little laryngitis. So um, you, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to listen really hard this morning, but you can do it. So here's this passage of Scripture for us today. I think most of you probably know it at least to some degree. And when I read it, Words come to my mind like truthful and honest and trustworthy. There's a word in Albanian that I'll teach you today, and it's the word besa. Besa. Well, you won't use that word, but I will tell you what it means. It means that you have decided that you will be honest and trustworthy. And recently, in fact, just the other day, Charlotte saw this piece from Albania. It was all in English, and it was talking about the word Bessa. And it was proud of, uh, you know, how this nation of people were about honesty and trustworthiness. Now, I must tell you, Charlotte and I have been going to Albania since 2002. That's not how I've learned to describe the country or the people in particular, though there are many who would be like that. In fact, I remember the first trip that we took, uh, we were coming into the city, the capital city of Tirana, and there was this picture of a hand like this in red, and underneath it, it said miaft, or miafta, and that means stop, and I said to somebody, stop what? I mean, this is up high on a billboard on a highway, and it said, they said, it means stop the corruption. It was paid for, actually, by some Christians. And it was calling the people of Albania to stop the corruption. Well, many of the people today, including the, the, the prime minister of this country, 
are committed to being trustworthy, truthful people. And I thought, well, most of them are Muslims, but all right, I'm, I'm glad for that. And I want to be that kind of person too. Well, this passage of Scripture that's before us is all about what it means to be that kind of person or what happens to us when we're not. It's not particularly, though, however, about when we are not trustworthy with other people. It's with ourselves. It's about who we are. I mean, the Bible is filled with stories of deception. What's the greatest Old Testament story that we might think of? I suppose it's back when Satan him, himself kind of imposed his, his ways on uh, one of Isaac's boys, Jacob. We know the story of Jacob. He was a deceiver. But let's not forget that Abraham, Abram, he tried to deceive uh, leaders in his day, saying, this gal is not my wife, she's my sister. And then along came Abram's son, Isaac, and he said, well, she's not... By the way, that was a half-truth. And Isaac came along and said the same thing about his wife, and it wasn't true at all. And then Isaac had these boys, and Jacob came along, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this from my this blessing and promise from my, my brother. I'm going to steal it from him. And he was deceptive. And if that's not all, you come to the sons of Jacob, and he's got a dozen of them. One of them's in a pit, and... The boys sell him off for some money and send him off to Egypt, and they go back and say to their father, what? Oh, yeah, well, you know, we're sorry, Dad, but these animals, look at this coat. The animals must have killed him, and this is all that's left. Sometimes I think, you know, uh, we ought to get past lying and dishonesty and deception. It's always been around. My conjecture is that when we are not walking in step with the Spirit, it will always be there. But this issue of self-deception becomes very clear to us as we look at the story that's found to, for us in this passage of Scripture. question is, how is Achan self-deceived? I want to tell you. I want to tell you there are a few ways that we see that. But start in verse 21. It says that he saw some of this this material, this loot, as we might say, that was devoted for destruction, which meant it was going to be destroyed or it was going to go into the coffers of the treasury of the people of Israel for God. And Achan came and he saw some of it. We know that. Seeing is not a sin, but here was this robe. I think it was from Jones of New York or someplace like that. And, and, and here was this Tiffany stuff in gold and silver or something like that. It was beautiful things that had come from Mesopotamia, actually. And it, they were things that the people of Israel would never have seen, never have had. It was way outside their realm of life. He saw it, and then the Bible tells us that he coveted it, and that means he craved it, and then he took it, and that means he stole it. And then we go all the way back to verse 1, and we find out the effects of this were that not only in Achan's life, this proved that the people of Israel were unfaithful. And that's a word that's used to describe a wife's, a wife's adultery. Now, just for the record, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament Ten Commandments, we have now gone through number 8, number uh, 10, and then number 1. The, of the Ten Commandments here in just a few statements about this man who did something that's not in the list of Ten Commandments when he would steal and then he would lie. What he actually did was he betrayed the very trust of God. Achan deceived himself so much that he actually believed that what was not true was true. 
and he himself then became unfaithful. And he hid, he hid all of that he gathered together, you know, dug a hole, and I, I don't know the soil right there was then. I know today it's pretty easy to work into the soil of where this would be in Israel today. And he dug a hole, and he put it underneath it. Now, you know, I, I think of Achan, he's kind of a smart dude. He's got all of this loot. Again, none of it looks like anything that Israel would have. And he puts it in the tent. I mean, this is not like stealing a cookie. You can steal a cookie and you can eat it. This is foreign stuff. And of course, once he's placed it there, pretty soon the people of Israel are going to pick up their tents and they're going to move. And I'm thinking, so now what do you do, Achan? Have you got this stuff that belongs to God, was either to be destroyed, maybe the, the clothing and the gold and the silver, which would be given to the treasury of God. Now what are you going to do? I mean, his hand is caught in this proverbial cookie jar, isn't it? And the lot seems cast in his life. And eventually he's caught by Joshua. And eventually the horror of the story is that he and everything that was connected him, with him gets destroyed including the things that were there in the tent. So what were, just just walk with me through this a little bit today. What were Achan's deceptions? What were the things that he thought were true that weren't true? And let's just see if maybe we think some of those thoughts as well. Here, here, here's the first one. You know, what I did wasn't that big a deal. I mean, in the economy of things, the whole city is just a, a little stuff. Now, eventually, he's going to say, verse 20, truly, I've sinned against the Lord God. And then he'll say what he did. Seems to me that in my life, and by the way, uh, I struggled with deception when I was four and five years old. And I still struggle with deception. I know that's strange to you, for you to hear. But you've got kids growing up in your home. It's only going to get worse. It's only going to, it starts when they're about four or five, I'm told. You know, by the time they're two, they know how to rebel. They know how to say no. You didn't teach them that. They learned that some, something about the image of Adam within them. By the time they're four or five, they're, they're learning, how, they're figuring it out. How do I hide things so I don't look so bad? And that's the thing that all of us do. I mean, you don't think you do it, but you do it. I mean, we wear certain clothes. I wear certain clothes. Because I want to cover up as much of the ugly as I can of my body. There's a little desire to be deceptive about that. And you say, well, that's not a big deal. I know, that's not a big deal. But there are other things where we want others to think we have more money than we really have. Or we're able to do things that we really can't afford to do. Or we have been honest with God about all things. When we down, downright in the heart of our hearts know that we haven't been. So that's why I think, all right, this passage of Scripture is, is important for us nonetheless. And our, our first go-to is to say to God or to others, it's just, or to ourselves, it's just not that big of a deal. And here's what's happened when, when we say that. Here's what's happening. We've figured out, we've counted the cost, and we're saying it's worth making this effort to be deceptive, but we've forgotten one thing. We've counted out God. We've left God out of the equation. The rest of it, we figure we, we can do this. But we've left God out. Now, you, 
you know, this isn't really my idea. Uh, and, and this is not even the prophet Malachi's, but I'm going to reference him because Malachi wrote it down. It's really God's idea. Here's what God said to the people of Israel. Return to me. And they said, say what? How? And he said, stop robbing me. And they said, how do we rob you? You rob me in tithes and offerings. Really, they said. And he said, yes, you are under a curse, a whole nation of you. Most people don't think that way. Most people don't think that God really cares about the things that he says he cares about. It's no big deal. So sometimes it's about financial things. But here's one for you. I think often it's about the gifts that God has given to us that are not material. Now the Bible says each one of us has been given spiritual gifts, right? Spiritual gifts. What in the world does that mean? What God has put into your heart by your Holy Spirit into your life, some things that you wouldn't be able to do if he wasn't doing it through you. And Paul, of course, you've studied these things, I'm sure. Paul gives us lists, and they seem rather extensive at times and rather minimal at times, but you know, things as simple as hospitality and giving and leadership and serving and teaching and preaching, exhorting, exhortation. And there are sign gifts as well that some of us don't really know what to do with. I know that Pastor Chris does because he's from Dallas Seminary and they figured it out. But I still don't know exactly what to do with them all. I just went to Trinity, so excuse me. All I know is God's placed these gifts in our life. And I can remember when I was in my... Well, I heard Ray Stedman. If you, you old folks know who Ray Stedman was, he was guy that made the study of spiritual gifts rather infamous back back in the 19 what 70s um, and uh, then I remember when I was just uh, an associate pastor doing youth ministry in a church in Tucson Arizona and some guy came up to me because I preached on a Sunday he said you have the gift of exhortation I said say what I mean I already studied this stuff but nobody had ever said anything like you have a gift of I just wondered what my gifts were. There's a place for you to acknowledge that in your own life. There's also a place for us to encourage it and store it up in others. And here's the point. God puts those gifts in our life. What are we doing with them? We say, well, you know, I don't have time to use them. Uh, nobody would appreciate it if I did use them. We start lying to ourselves, lying to ourselves. And uh, then we say, it's no big deal. Last, last Saturday, Friday and Saturday, a week ago, uh, I did a 24-hour retreat with a church that I first met up with in 2004, three. And, uh, you know, there, there were 40 people at this 24-hour retreat. That's all. I mean, they had to leave work early Friday afternoon. Some of them had to work, skip work on Saturday. Many people in Albania, by the way, work six and seven days a week for about three or $400 a month. And they're poor. They're very poor. But some people that help raise these funds, and then they get somebody that doesn't cost them anything like me 
that come along and do some Bible teaching, which was a joy. But let me, what I want you to know is there were 40 people there. And to go to this retreat, you had to be a worker in the church. Well, I went to church on Sunday, which I do when I'm there occasionally. I'm able to go to their church sometimes to speak. This time I sat in the back and I looked around and there were probably about 65, maybe 70 people in the room. 40 of them had been on that retreat. In other words, these people understood that even though it was a small, small, relatively speaking church, large over there, but to our standards, 40 were identified by the leadership of the church as people who are investing in God's work. So God says, don't hide the gift. Don't hide what I've placed in you and use it for his glory. And that's exactly what I'm telling you God calls us to do as well. It is a big deal. The truth is, whatever God has placed in our heart, if we're not using it for his glory, if it's devoted to God, it's a big deal when we use it for our glory and not for his. Well, Practically, we think God doesn't care about these things. And we don't think about it. See, that's the lie. We don't think that God cares. He's not interested. God's got bigger fish to fry, don't you think? I mean, we're just a little church right here. We're not a lot of people. I mean, I, I passed a church where they have to have a police, they have to have a police escort so people can get in and out of the parking lot. God must be concerned about them. Well, God cares about your life and my life and how we use the gifts God's placed in our hearts. God's watching. God cares. I read a story a while ago by Tom Allen. He told a story of this, this bowl of large red apples. Delicious apples, by the way. And he, he placed them in front, uh, excuse me, and they were placed in the front of the cafeteria line at Asbury College, which is a theological institution for the training of Christian leaders. I, I, you need to know that. It's not just, you know, the University of Tennessee. This is a place where Christian leadership is to be developed. And there was a note that was attached to the apples. And it said this. Take one, only one, please. God is watching. Well, some prankster attached a note to a tray of peanut butter cookies that were at the other end of the line. And here's what the note said. Take all you want. God is watching the apples. You know what? God is really good. He watches the apples and the peanut butter cookies. He watches the people that you and I may know that are incredibly gifted and have all kinds of resources. And he watches my friends in Albania who have virtually nothing. And he watches you and he watches me, and I can't say, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. 
Well, there's a little more deception to the story, and it, it, it goes this way. Achan deceived himself by thinking this, no one will get hurt. That was one of his biggest lies to himself. I mean, he, he must have thought that. You know, I can take this, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it, but no one's really going to get hurt. What does God say? This is amazing. I mean, Joshua is a masterful strategic strategic thinker who sends out spies to this little place, maybe, what, 10 miles up the hill country, AI. Some people preach this passage and say, well, you know, if if Joshua just prayed about this first, well, that may be part of the story, but that's not the story that we read in this passage. People go up, they come back, the spies do, they say, this is a piece of cake. I mean, this is really small. It actually turns out to be a lot bigger than what they thought. They're only going to need two or 3,000 people. Eventually, 12,000 people fell in AI, so we know that. It's not going to be a problem. Now, this is our tendency. It's to assume that previous success guarantees continued success. You got that? Previous success almost always, we think, will guarantee continued success. In the, in the local church, it means whatever we did 20 years ago is going to work today. When, I, when Charlotte and I moved to Wisconsin when we were quite young, and I became the pastor of a, 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 a good-sized congregation, it had a it had a lot of stuff going on it when I got there. I didn't destroy everything, but but um, one of them was that the former pastor was this most musical guy. I mean, he looked he he looked like. Uh, What's the what's the chicken place um, with with the guy with the white hair? Thank you. It looks like Colonel Sanders. He looked like Colonel Sanders. He wore a white suit, but he had six daughters. So what did he do? I mean, this was a small church of 50 people. What did he do? He started a youth choir, and but by the time he was done and moved on, uh, some 10 years later, I came along with about as much musical skill in my little finger as as is I have a little finger. I mean, there was none, you know. And uh, and what am I going to do with these kids? There are a hundred of them. A hundred high schoolers traveling all across the United States called the Enthusiastics. They had two green buses. They Everybody wanted to hear the Enthusiastics sing. Nobody wanted to hear me preach, but they wanted to hear them. And the long story short is within about three years uh, or four, I guess, we didn't have the enthusiastics anymore. And I'll tell you what, it was a tough time, but it was a good time. I don't, and this is why. Because past success do not guarantee future success. And we had to each, each year or a few years as a church, we had to re-identify who we were. And yet, just for the record, the church did double in size during that season that we were there from about 400 to 800. But it wasn't because we were just doing what we did before. I, I think sometimes... We think if we just do whatever we did before, nobody will notice, and things will go on, and everything will be okay. Sometimes it doesn't. So we see ache and sin. Now, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 7, here's this lead comment, but the Israelites acted unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, and we read it already, Achan took and all of, all of that. And what I want you to see is this. We sometimes think that nobody's going to get hurt if we just go on and do the things the way we've always done them. Just do whatever we want to do. Nobody will get hurt. But there's a principle, theological principle in the Bible, and it's theologians call it the principle of solidarity. You may have 
run across this someplace. My guess is not, but one of my profs in seminary and then whom I took some other courses from after I graduated in Old Testament ethics talked about the principle of solidarity. And there is in the Bible this principle that sometimes God, because of one, blesses the many, and sometimes because of one, God condemns the many. Blessing or retribution. Both of them are in the scriptures. Because of one, many are affected. And we find that here. We'll find it again in chapter 9, the story of Gibeon. We find it in the New Testament, reflecting on the very beginning of time, right? You know this, 1 Corinthians 15. In Adam, all what? Yeah, they sin and they die. In Adam, all die. But that's the principle of solidarity. But the principle of solidarity is also found in Christ because in Christ, what? All will be made alive. Alive. Or Proverbs 20, verse 7. The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. Or the stories that we've alluded to already of Abram and Isaac and Jacob. This is principle of solidarity. So we see it here as well. And Oaken, I mean, he messes up. In verse 11, you start to read about it. There are six different words that are used to describe how badly he decided to live. And it's all about his sin. You know, brothers and sisters, I must not, I cannot somehow deceive myself into thinking that my lying doesn't affect all of us. All of us. And parents, it's true for you. And young people, our sins affect others as well. We lie to ourselves. We think, for instance, this is a change in American culture. Maybe not here, but it is most places. That uh, marriage between people other than a man and a woman is still marriage. People believe that now all across America. still marriage. It's a lie. According to God's word, people are being deceived. According to God's word, And it will hurt the many. The principle of solidarity. You know, I I was with my childhood friend. We we started third grade. We went to third grade together and all the way through high school. Pete and I, uh, he was was like 6'2 when I was 12. And I was about, well, I wasn't five foot tall when I... When I went to high school, so you know, I mean, I'm I'm the really little runt of the litter. But he was my friend. You know, we were talking just. Uh, he was down here to visit us not long ago, and we were talking about life then. Pete's parents were married, never divorced. My parents married, never divorced. Do you know ninety? In in those days, I'll say it this way. Statistically, 95 out of 100 of my peers were being raised by their own biological parents. Did you get that? 95 out of 100? One man, one woman. 
It's not that way anymore. Corporately, we have lived a lie. The list of things and way we can go on can go on. We, we deceive ourselves into believing that no one's going to get hurt. This gossip is one of those really strange things. We think, well, I'm, I'm just telling the truth. Truth can be gossip, or gossip can be truth. It doesn't matter. We say, well, you know, I, I've talked with pastors about this from a biblical theological perspective what if you're trying to help that person well sometimes that really is what you're doing and and that's okay sometimes we have to work through it but boy be careful be careful because gossip gossip is the 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 sin that probably does more corporate damage within the body of christ in a neighborhood than anything else i've gone on too long on this but hang in there for just a few more minutes there's a couple more one is this things will work themselves out in the end that's the third deception I find in the story. In time, the problem will go away. Just, just give it a little more time. Minor setback, you know, whoops, little mistake, as one of my friends used to say. Kids will get over it. Kids will get over the things that we've done as parents in the home. Just give it some time. Our son Tim preached, uh, I think, last Sunday uh, down at, at Two Rivers, a church, and his text was from First Peter uh, 4, which includes the phrase, love covers a multitude of sins is a great verse. Boy, I really need to remember that because I need to remember to give my love to those people who have had brokenness in their life. But things don't just get better because of time. Uh, Paul says in Romans Romans 6, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? What's the answer to that question? The answer is, are you kidding me? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Now, he didn't put it quite like that, but that's what he said. So Joshua responds, and you can see verse 6, there's genuine sorrow. I mean, I don't know how to sorrow like this, do you? Uh, this is really sorrowing. I mean, this down on your face for probably hours in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, you're dusting the top of your head saying, God, man, we have really messed up. He tears his clothes. All of these things, and the leaders are with him. Joshua just doesn't get it, in fact. I mean, he becomes, it seems to me, depressed. and He wants to throw in the towel, but, you know, depression is not God's answer to sin. It never, it never will be. We may go through it, but that's not the answer. So there is repentance Sorrowful repentance, but there's also in verses seven through nine, there's the clarification of the wrong, and so Joshua starts to clarify. He says, "We really missed this thing. I don't know how this happened exactly, but but we missed this thing." And most of us, when we run into our own sin, we say, "Well, you know, God, if I sinned, and we we gotta stop that. We can't say if I've sinned. I've heard that so many times. You know, if I, listen, Brad, if I've offended you, no, no." I need to examine my own heart. And if I would offend you or Charlotte or any of you here today, I need to find out in my own heart. I need to clarify that and deal with that. So there's the clarification of the wrong, and then there's the redirectional action. That's verse 10 and following. So God says, up, up, come on, Joshua, up, stand up. Israel is sin, verse 12, and you can't win with sin in the camp, and I won't be with you unless you deal with the sin. So the story is... They dealt with it. Here's another problem that we sometimes have within the body of Christ. On one hand, we are easy to, we are quick to judge. I mean, we can throw, 
we can throw darts at people's lives really, I can, really easily. I can tell you what's wrong real quickly, even if I'm, even if I'm wrong. I can still do it. I know how to do that, unfortunately. On the other hand, sometimes we go, well, like I said, we just got to, it, it's not that big a deal. We got to let this thing heal. Uh, I've pastored a church with multiple staffs, a couple of cities. You know, there, there was the longest time with, in, in California where the staff that was there actually thought I could never let anybody ever go. I never wanted to. I loved them. And then we had a moral failure that was very significant. And boy, did I get criticized by some people in the pew because I said, you can't, we can't have him working here anymore. And we provided counseling and resources and all kinds of things. The trust was broken. See, some of you are probably saying, well, come on. No, there is a place where sin must be dealt with and things don't just get better in time. That's one of the lies that we believe. Now, there's just one more, and then I'll be done. One more lie that can be self-deceiving, and that is this. When you lose, the game is over. Now, I'm glad I get to sp spend just a couple minutes on this at the end this morning. It, it's not necessarily over for anybody. Uh, here's what I mean. Um, Charles, You know the name Charles Spurgeon. I'm sure most of you do. Uh, in 1857, two years before I was born, just kidding, uh, <laughs> see if you're still awake, uh, he gave a sermon called Confession of Sin. Oh, this ought to be a good sermon, right? Actually, in that sermon, he had, you think this is long this morning, he had seven texts, seven of them. Because Spurgeon oftentimes would preach just kind of one verse, not long passages, so this time he picked... Seven different texts, though, in one sermon. And the, the phrase from each of these texts was this, I have sinned. I have sinned. So, come on, you, you Bible people, you can figure out where some of them were, right? Uh, Pharaoh said it. Balaam said it. Saul said it. Achan said it. Judas said it. And Job said it. And the prodigal son, they all said, I have sinned. I think Spurgeon could have had eight texts because he forgot David. But, you know, that wouldn't be a perfect sermon if it had eight texts or seven. What I, what I see when I read those kinds of old sermons is that confession is actually necessary, essential to our life. Um, there is a reason why in the liturgical church confession of sin is part of the common worship experience. The, the downside of that is it becomes trite and just go, people go through words. I mean, there was a day when my grandfather was preaching up in New England and people would come down front and they'd be there week after week, some of them. And I, I can remember being in a couple of those services and thinking, what's wrong with these people? You know, I've seen him there before. Why doesn't he get his act together? And then I grew up and I realized I still don't have my act together. So confession of sin is necessary. 
In the context of that, then, when there is confession, always when there is confession of sin, there are a couple of things that God will do. One is remedial. Remedial, that is, God uh, does things to a person and in the context even of a group of people so that, that he can perfect us. He can bring us even to a deeper understanding of who he is. So you know the story of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 and, through 11, and that's where God says, yep, yeah, I discipline those that I love. And it's not so I can destroy them. So there are times and places where God is uh, remedial. In fact, uh, there's a Hebrew set of writings called the Midrash. Um, I'm sure Pastor Chris has referenced it, whether he was smart enough not to mention what it was, like I just did or not. Uh, Nonetheless, it's a non-biblical set of writings. But in those writings... They believed that Achan actually had repented a deathbed repentance. You know what that is. We call it a foxhole repentance for those who were serving in the military. The word to Israel in Deuteronomy 11 was consider the, re- the discipline of the Lord. Consider it. God is doing something in our life. Can we do something with this? So that God can do what God will do. Because without confession of sin, it won't happen. God does not just turn his head. He doesn't just say it doesn't matter. Oh, they'll get over it. Time will heal. It's no big deal. God doesn't say those things. But God does wonderfully discipline us and bring us back to a place of spiritual health in his time. In his time. God is also redemptive, that's verse 26, Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. You just have to see that. 2 Chronicles 15, verse 2 says, God is with you while you are with him. Did you catch that? God is with you while you are with him. Why do we pray this prayer? Ask me, why. Ask me afterwards if you want, because we'll have a long... Why aren't we praying, God, I want to be with you? I mean, even when we're saying, you know, I'm going on this trip, God... Be with us. No, I want to be with you on this trip because I want to be talking with the people you want me to be talking with and I want to have the attitude of Christ and I I want to be with you. I want to be with you. Can you just say with me this, this morning, I just need to be with him. Aiken, I, I don't know whether I'm going to see Aiken in heaven or not. Maybe there was a death repentance I I just know this that I need to be with him and so the people of Israel knew that and they set up chapter 8 they set up this place of offering in verse 30 and following because they wanted to be with God they wanted to be with God There are some insights from this passage of Scripture. One is that moralism is not the answer. Moralism is not the answer. This isn't just about being good people, not telling lies. We, we can't be like the little train that says, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's not about, listen, I can't, I have never been able to contra- control my own behavior. I say, I need Christ in me to have full reign of my heart 
for people to see Jesus. Moralism is not the answer. Ownership of the wrong is necessary. We can't just simply pass the buck. We, we, we have to own our own issues. One of my favorite football stories took place just a few years ago. Because if you don't know this about me, I love to watch uh, some sport games. Baseball is my big thing. And I did wake up just to double check to see if the Dodgers or the Brewers won last night. But um, but I grew up near Chicago, so the Chicago Bears were my my team as a kid. And um, a few years ago, not many now, the Bears had had one of those typical Bear games where they were doing pretty well, and then there were three turnovers at the end of the game in the last six minutes, and they blew the game. And I, I wondered how would they respond. One of them was by... Uh, maybe a Hall of Famer, but it's certainly a star running back by the name of Matt Forte. And uh, the other was by a, a quarterback that in most people's opinion was highly overrated, but he was the quarterback of the Chicago Bears named Jay Cutler. This is what Matt Forte said. Listen to this. I should have had both my hands on the football, and I didn't. Okay, got that? Here's Jay Cutler's. The ball got away from us. It sailed. Cutler is blaming the football. Cutler is blaming everybody else. It got away from us, he said. Forte is saying, man, I should have held the ball. Ownership of wrong is always necessary. Uh, when I did biblical counseling with people, I would say, look, just figure out what your part in this is and own it. Own it. You'll be surprised what your spouse or friend will say when you own up to your own wrong. And then solidarity needs our genuine, our complete participation. We, we're in this together. We're in this together. Uh, I'm not sure who said this, Abraham Lincoln or Mark Twain or P.T. Barnum. But one of them did. You know what they said. You know whoever said this. You can fool some of the people all the time and all of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. I like to think it was Abraham Lincoln. Most people pick somebody else. I, uh, I think Aiken probably knew that like we, if when we take off on God and his word, when we put our spin on whatever we have done and say that God doesn't matter and we do it our own way, we have forgotten this. There is no fooling with God. There's no fooling with God. Well, I, I, I know this was a long piece, and I struggled through it a bit with you today. My, my confidence is this, that pretty soon, Charlotte hates it when I say this, but pretty soon I will enter heaven. Now, she thinks I mean in the next 24 hours. And maybe I will. It, it may be that it's a bit longer than that. But pretty soon. And I'm one of those kind of crazy guys that thinks, I ought to be everything Christ wants me to be here on earth. Because I, I want to get a head start on everybody else when I get to heaven. That's not really the way I think. But I think this way, that I want to be 
I want to be conformed to his image now. So there's less work, and it'll all be remedial, by the way, in heaven, whatever God has to do with me. That's why I really think Charlotte's going to learn to play the piano just as good as you. But it's take about 50 or 60 years in heaven. Um, and I'll finally figure out how do you really do expository preaching. And uh, I'll be able to do craft work with wood because I'm a hacker right now. But seriously, what I really will be is I will be demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in heaven all the time. But it may take a little more rough edges being knocked. Well, my sin, my sin's all dealt with. My sin is all dealt with. When I when I die and enter heaven, my sin is all dealt with. But I think there is something in the scriptures that was looking at it last night um, that God is perfecting us so that we have a very we just have a very little passage way into heaven. I'm reading a book by Dallas Willard right now. Well, no, it's about Dallas Willard by Gary Black Jr. It's called Preparing for Heaven. In it, uh, Gary Black describes a conversation he had with with uh, Dallas Willard hours before he died. And he came into his room. He tapped him on the shoulder to see if he was still with him. And he was. His eyes became bright and alert. And he said, I'm in the hallway. I'm in the hallway. And he said, uh, I, I, I finally understand what the cloud of witnesses are all about. I never could figure that out. Dallas Willard's a great theologian, philosopher. I could never figure that out. But he said, they're there. They're there. And most people who knew, I took some, uh, I studied under Dallas Willard for a while. Um, he demonstrated the life of Christ on earth. I think the transition was easy for him. So I don't know how much time I have left for you, for you, for you. But oh, to be like him when he comes. Father, we, we know your love is sufficient. But we will not just... Uh, and not just kind of sit back and say, so it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, this, this long story of, of Achan deceived himself. Missed out on an awful lot, whether he's with you or not now, I don't know. But he missed out on an awful lot just for some trinkets of life. Oh, that we might be like you when Jesus, our Savior, comes and takes us into your presence. Help us then, Lord, to live a life that's confessional, caring for one another as we do, for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.